0: Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, October 2nd, 2015. This week is episode 385. Cliff, the Z-Man Zlotnick, and Radio Joe Hughes are out of the office today. We are at our annual IAEQ Mold and Disaster Restoration Conference, part of the Healthy Building Summit at Seven Springs Resort in southwestern Pennsylvania. So what we're going to do is flash back to a show we did in March, March 16th to be exact, of 2012, episode 240 with Dr. Peter Sandman. Great show. He was the creator of the Risk Equal Hazard Plus Outrage Formula. This is where we're going to learn a little bit about how to handle, you know, Difficult situations, crisis-type situations, how to differentiate between a real crisis and something that has been kind of blown into a crisis. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this Flashback Friday. The Z-Man and I will be back live next week at noon.
1: Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the
2: indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed.
0: Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, March 16th, 2012. This week, episode 240 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, here with me in the studio. I'm back in the studio with the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick.
1: Joe, I'm glad you're back.
0: <laughs> it's good to be back, Cliff. Assisting at the controls, as always, is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender.
3: Good morning. Happy
0: Friday. And, Val. La, la, la. and of course, joining us later by phone, back from vacation, will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Today's segments include... An interview with dr peter sandman on risk communication issues we're going to have a great interview with uh, one of the preeminent uh, experts on risk communication issues and we're going to try and bring it around to indoor air quality and disaster restoration type issues of course we'll have the re- radio trivia question uh our interview our halftime and then of course we'll finish with the roundup before we get started we've got to thank our Key sponsors Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections,
1: the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com.
0: John Don products where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine,
1: your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: All right. To listen to the show, of course, you can follow your link from the show invitation that says go to the show or that button go to show on the IAQradio.com website. You can also stream past shows directly from our website homepage or download it by Following the Go to Show link, right click on the download button and save it to your favorite MP3 player. You can, of course, also get them from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have the certification maintenance points available IICRC continuing education credits or ACAC renewal credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust. At IAQtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question.
1: Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners, and being the first person to correctly answer the Ieq Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer on your computer. Congratulations. <laughs> to Andy Krasowski, Concast Metal Products, Mars PA, for yet another time being the first person to identify Wi-Fi as the technology that an Australian named John O'Sullivan and his colleagues stumbled onto in 1992 when he was trying to detect the radio pulse of exploding mini black holes The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday March 16th 2012 has been sponsored by Triska the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for they're members for over 30 years. Triska is your source to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. What historical event occurred in Pennsylvania in March of 1979 that required significant hazard communication management? Back to you, Joe.
0: I see Andy's back. Huh? <laughs> Today's guest is Dr. Peter Sandman, creator of the Risk Equal Hazard Plus Outrage formula for risk communication. Dr. Sandman is one of the preeminent risk communication speakers and consultants in the United States today, and also worked extensively in Europe, Australia, and other locations around the globe. He has helped his clients through a wide range of public controversies that threaten their reputation, from oil spills to labor management battles, from vaccine autism scares to the siting of hazardous waste facilities. There are These are oftentimes situations where the hazard is low, the outrage is high, and the core task is outrage management. He also works on the other side of risk issues, helping activists arouse concern about serious hazards, so helping companies persuade employees, for instance, to take safety rules more seriously. In this case, we're working with precaution advocacy as there is a high hazard, high hazard low outrage situation. And finally, he works on crisis communication. When we've got terrorist attacks or epidemics, for example, and the hazard and the outrage are both high. And we'll talk a little bit more about that whole formula as we go on with the interview. Dr. Salmon, as a Rutgers University professor from 1977 to 1995, where he founded the Environmental Communication Research Program, he was its director until 1992. In 95, he left the university and became a full-time consultant. His PhD is in communication from Stanford University, and we've got some music for him.
2: Down. Hey, hey, I know you've been
0: <laughs> Hello, Dr. Salmon. Do we have you on the phone. Yes, hi. How are you? Great. Thanks. Welcome. We're great. Thanks for. Well, we appreciate you joining us. I know you've been a busy gentleman, and you know you're well known in the risk communication area. How did you become interested in risk communication?
2: Well, I, I started out actually in environmental communication. I started out as an environmental activist. I was, I was a, uh, a communication uh, graduate student, uh, interested in the question of how do you get people more worried about the environment? How do you uh, persuade people to take environmental issues seriously? Uh, and you know, it was maybe ten or fifteen years after that. Uh, where, you know, that it started in the sixties, but it was wasn't really until the the early eighties that I broadened my interest in environmental activism uh, uh, to a, a broader analysis that says, you know, sometimes you need to scare people, sometimes you need to reassure people, sometimes you need to guide people, uh, and I, I sort of moved past the environmental title. Of not, I still do environmental work, but I, I broadened it to risk communication. Uh,
1: yes, Dr. Sammon, uh, prior to your pioneering efforts, how was risk communication handled?
2: Well, you know, I mean, part of risk communication, the part of risk communication that involves uh, alerting people to risk, you know, warning people about risk, has a very long history. It goes back to Aristotle, uh, and long before I got into the field, uh, there were experts and researchers and, and, and professionals uh, in, in, in warning, in health communication, and you know, how to persuade people to quit smoking or to, uh, you know, to wear their seat belts. That has a very, very long history. Uh, it, it's the other side that I probably made the biggest contributions to. Uh, that is, what do you do when people are more upset than they ought to be? Um, and and I, think, I think the only handle on that before you know, I and some other people uh, you know, that, that joined me in this work, uh, the, before, you know, before the, the 1980s or so, the only handle on that was public relations, and it wasn't a very good handle. Um, And that kind of risk communication, which I call outrage management, really didn't get launched until the
1: 80s. Would you describe what occurred before you got actively involved as really dealing with numbers, you know, uh, telling the public what the numbers were and explaining the numbers and interpreting the numbers? Well, yeah,
2: I mean, the natural thing to do, especially if you're a technical person, uh and people are uh, you know upset with you and upset with the situation and they think it's dangerous and they think it's killing them and and you know it's not and you know you have a masters degree or you have a phd and you know a lot of data the most natural thing in the world is to think well if i just explain to them why they're wrong um they'll get it and they'll calm down um and that that flies in the face of of several problems you know one problem is that um People don't understand numbers very easily. Uh, another problem is that when people are upset, they're in no mood to, to, to hear numbers. Uh, you know, they, they may be in no mood to hear anything. They may need, may need to vent uh, and tell you how upset they are before they can listen to you at all. But even when they start listening to you, numbers is not high on their agenda of, of, of what they want to talk about. Uh, and trust may be low, they may not believe you. Uh, I mean, there there are all kinds of barriers. So that, you know, sort of one of the basic principles here is when people are upset and you think they're mistakenly upset, teaching them how stupid they're being is not the path to calming them down. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> Let me let's talk a little bit about just who you do this work for. I, I assume you know you've probably got some manufacturers and, and big companies like that. Uh, maybe oil companies, etc. Maybe some government clients. Can you tell us if we've uh, missed any that our you, our listeners might find you know might not have thought of as someone that would need risk communication help?
2: Well, I would say maybe half, maybe a little over half my work is with industry. Uh, And it's different industries at different times. As you say, the oil industry has been a big client. Uh, The mining industry has. The waste management industry has uh, uh, power generation, chemicals. Um, You know, if you look at an industry that's in trouble, uh, it's probably been, you know, a pretty good client over the years. Uh, but that's, that's maybe half, a little over half of my work. Um, the rest of it is with a much wider range of clients. I do a lot of work with government agencies uh, of all kinds. Uh, some of them are obvious, like EPA and, and uh, health departments and things like that. Some of them are less obvious, like uh, you know, working with the FBI or working with transportation. Um, so a lot of work with government. Um, I do some work with the media, some work with activists. So um, and every once in a while, a, an ordinary normal person calls me up and and hires me to to help guide them through some kind of risk communication dilemma. But but you know that that's the range,
0: right? You know I I also noticed that you did a lot of articles and still do for the Synergist, which I guess is is published by an industry association, the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Have you had other organizations like that? contact you as well
2: well yeah uh, I mean much of my industry work turns out to be with industry associations or trade associations ah, of one sort or another uh, and of course much of it is with individual companies the work with AIHA is a little different AIHA I don't you know I mean it's not really an industry group it's got it's got members that are in industry members that are in government that even have even has members that are in uh, in activist groups uh, I see my work with A.I.H.A. as as part of my effort to you know to sort of teach risk communication to anyone I can get to listen. Uh, and similarly, if I can give you a, 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 an advertisement this early in the interview, uh, I maintain a website which is not for purposes of bringing me business, but for purposes of of replacing me uh, for people who you know don't want to hire me or can't hire me or after I'm tired of being hired. Uh, and that that website has huge amounts of of information about risk communication on it. It has all the the, the articles I've written for uh, AIHA Synergist over the years, um, and you know the the URL for that website is www.psandman.com. So if you if you get interested in any of what we have to say in the next hour that's where you can read about it until you're just sick of it there's this enormously more information there than any normal person would want to read
0: i've got a project right now that i have to bone up on but it's uh it's one specific to my work so i'll do that from your website thank you
1: well i'm i'm not sure whether this is the right time to ask this question or not is there a difference between rightful and wrongful outrage
2: well yeah but, I mean, let, if I can, let me back off the question and talk okay. about the difference between hazard and outrage first. And I okay. think that'll yeah. help me answer the question. Can I do that?
0: Yes, please.
2: I mean, the, the, the single most important thing in my judgment about risk communication, that's sort of the core of the whole field, is the extremely low correlation between the risks that get people upset and the risks that actually hurt people. Uh, you know, those of you who are into numbers, uh, if you calculate a correlation, you know, you make a list of hazards and you, you, you rank order them by how dangerous they are and then you rank order them by how upsetting they are and you correlate the two rank orders, it comes out 0.2, uh, an incredibly low correlation. Uh, you know, so basically what that's teaching us is, is that if you know a risk is dangerous, that tells you almost nothing about whether it's upsetting. If you know it's upsetting... That tells you almost nothing about whether it's dangerous. So, you know, back in the 80s, uh, I invented terminology. I said, all right, look, let's call whether it's dangerous hazard. Let's call whether it's upsetting outrage. Uh, And I coined the formula that sent my children to college and is probably going to send my grandchildren to college. uh, And that formula is very simple. Risk equals hazard plus outrage. That is... There are two components of risk. One is whether it's dangerous, that's the hazard, and the other is whether it's upsetting, that's the outrage. Now, one of the things you always want is to have the outrage proportional to the hazard. So, that, you know, the goal is to have people as upset as the, as the technical seriousness of the risk justifies. Okay? So that's, that's sort of the answer to your question. If the if the hazard is high, then high outrage is a good thing because you know you want people upset about serious risks so that they'll take precautions. Uh, you know, so, so you know if people get upset because they're smoking, that's good. If they get upset because they're eating too much, that's good because that you know that that uh, uh, outrage will will motivate them to do something about their about their diet to do something about their tobacco habit. Uh, so that's a good thing. If people are outraged out of proportion to the outrage, uh, I, I'm sorry, out of proportion to the hazard in either direction, that's bad. So if it's dangerous and they're not upset, that's a problem. If they're upset and it's not dangerous, that's a different problem. Um, uh, am I making sense so
0: far? Absolutely. Now, can you go back and give me a couple of examples of things that people feel? Are more of a hazard than they are when you look at the actual numbers
2: okay I mean i mean the the risks that are high in outrage and low in hazard uh I mean you know there are lots of them, and there are lots of exceptions to you know to some of the basic uh, examples so I would say for example, most superfund sites are much higher hazard a much higher outrage. Than hazard that is, the, the, the neighbors of that superfund site are much more upset usually than they are endangered. But not always. You can find hazardous waste sites where the neighbors are copacetic and, and, the, and the hazard is high. So it's not, it's not always true. but you know I, I, in general, people who live near a hazardous waste site are more upset than they ought to be. People who live near a nuclear power plant are more upset than they ought to be, but that turned out not to be so in Fukushima. So, again, you know, there are generalizations, and then sometimes there are exceptions. That, you know, as you know, that happens in anything that's, that's grounded in statistics. You know, there will be events that, that, that run against the trend. Um, not all of these things, are, you know, the examples I've given you are largely environmental examples, but there are examples out of other spheres of life as well. People are much more likely to get upset about the risk of a stranger abducting their child than the size of that, that hazard justifies. They are likely to get insufficiently worried about the risk of a, of a of a of a family member abducting their child. Most most abductions of children are by you know uh, ex spouses, and yet most anxiety about child abduction is about strangers. So that you know, there's an example where the hazard and the outrage diverge. That has nothing to do with the environment.
0: Let me throw out one other example. The the. The flu bug, and I'm not talking about the you know H1N1 the the strain that was a problem a couple of years back, but the you know the ad, average annual flu bug. Where does that rank outrage versus the the actual hazard?
2: Well, from 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 I mean, flu is a very common, very debilitating disease. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, lots of people catch it, and for most of them, it means a horrible week, a week in hell. Uh, sicker than a dog. If you if you think you have you had flu and you weren't sicker than a dog, you probably didn't have flu. You might have had a mild case, but flu is a is a serious disease which gets insufficient respect. You know people people misuse the term. They you know they say I had I had flu when all they had is a cold. Uh, you know so I would say in general people are insufficiently outraged, insufficiently worried about flu. Uh, which which keeps them from, you know, getting their flu shot under circumstances when it would be wise for them to do so. And then, you know, obviously there are exceptions. There are people who are, uh, uh, who imagine that flu is deadlier than it is and, and you know, imagine that, you know, if, they, if, if anyone they know gets the flu, that person's probably going to die, which is not true. Uh, so, you know, but, it, you know, for most people, flu is a bigger hazard than it is an outrage.
0: So would you say that's a, a hazard, high outrage, low category.
2: Well, I mean, for for, I mean, I mean, let's go back to the let's go back to the category. Let's do that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay.
2: Ha- ha- hazard is is it dangerous? Outrage is, is it means is it is it upsetting? So if you if you sort of imagine a two by two table, you know, dangerous high or low, upsetting high or low. Uh, and this is specific to the person or to the group of people you're talking about, it, you know, and, and it's a specific moment in time. It can change. Uh, but, uh, let's, let's look at the, at, at the four boxes. Okay. If hazard is high and outrage is low, your problem is that people are insufficiently upset about something that's really dangerous, then the task is what I call precaution advocacy. Uh, the goal is to get people to take the risk more seriously, so that they'll take precautions. You're trying to uh, shake them by their collective lapels and say, "Look here, this is dangerous. This could kill you. Do something. Uh, you know, wear a ha- wear a hard hat, wear a condom, wear a seatbelt. Not necessarily all at the same time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so, I mean, precaution advocacy is all about increasing the outrage in order to get people to take serious risks more seriously." And, you know, when when uh, health departments do flu campaigns, you know, flu vaccination campaigns, when they try to persuade people uh, to get their flu shot, you know, their assumption is that people are insufficiently outraged about flu and they're doing precaution advocacy. They're trying to increase flu outrage in order to get more people to get the flu shot. That's one corner in the opposite corner. Uh, you have a situation where the hazard is is low and the outrage is high uh and you know and, and that 's certainly one of the most common uh, indoor environmental quality issues uh when you know people it's it's not it 's not that there are no indoor environmental uh quality issues but the you know people may be exaggerating the issues people may be much more upset, much more worried, much more angry uh than the situation justifies and and you know a technical person you know uh, someone from you know from your listening audience may come into that situation and and you know they're facing uh, a a homeowner uh, or a renter uh, or the employees of a of a of a business uh that are convinced that they've got a sick building they're convinced that you know that the uh, uh some kind of pathogen in the building is incredibly dangerous to them and you know Obviously, you know, if you're a good technical person, you want to take seriously the possibility that they're flat-out right, but you look into it, you find out they're not right, that, you know, there are minor uh, 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 indoor environmental quality problems, but they are pretty minor, and they don't account for the symptoms that people are imagining they have. That's all the opposite problem, and I call that outrage management. You're trying to manage the outrage down rather than up. Uh, and, you know, as is true or, or, or already, I think, pretty obvious from those two uh, uh, examples, is, you know, y- y- you want to know how high the hazard is before you decide where you want the outrage. So managing the outrage up is the right thing to do when the hazard is high. Managing the outrage down is the right thing to do when the hazard is low. People can disagree on that, but, you know, it's dishonorable if you know it's a serious risk to try to tell people not to be upset. Uh, it's dishonorable if you know it's a trivial risk to try to get people upset. You're trying to get the level of outrage that the hazard justifies. Now, the, the third box, and, and this is also very relevant, I think, to, to, to your listeners, the third box is when the hazard and the outrage are both high. Uh, people are upset, and they're right to be upset because it's it's really dangerous. Uh, and that I call crisis communication. Uh, if the paradigm in 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 precaution advocacy is watch out, uh, the paradigm in outrage management is calm down. Uh, The paradigm in crisis communication is we'll get through this together. You're not trying to reduce the outrage because they're right to have high outrage. You're not trying to increase the outrage because it's high enough already. Uh, You're trying to help people bear the outrage. You're trying to help them bear the difficult situation. And you're trying to help them make wise rather than unwise decisions. So the, the other major audience that you guys have... Uh, you know, is is restoration after a, a real emergency, after a fire or after a natural disaster, that's crisis communication. You know, I mean, it is it, a very different situation if you're talking to someone who thinks their home is damaged when it really isn't, than if you're talking to someone who knows perfectly well their home is damaged and they're and they're devastated. Uh, so that's that's the third box, and it's an entirely you know, each of those three is an entirely different kind of risk communication. And, uh, and finally, you know, the fourth box is when the hazard is, is low and the outrage is also low. And I've never found a way to earn a living down there. I divide my time about equally among the other three. But if people are rightly apathetic about a risk that's genuinely trivial... Why are you talking to them? I mean, what would you say? Congratulations on your apathy. You're, you're right. This really doesn't matter. Uh, so I say to clients: Look, if if people if people aren't upset and they're and and the risk isn't serious, leave them alone. Uh, but in the other three, if people are more upset than they should be, or less upset than they should be, or rightly very upset, uh, then there's a lot of communicating to be done.
0: You know, that's. Oh, I had a real quick one. Is that what, I swear somewhere along the way in my reading, is that what you called the sweet spot, or was that another of the boxes? Oh, no,
2: the sweet spot is right in the middle. That I mean, I, I skipped the sweet spot to make life easier, but you've been reading too much. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, right in the middle, you know, where the hazard is, is neither high nor low, it's kind of intermediate, and the outrage is neither high nor low, it's low, it's also intermediate. That's what I call the sweet spot, because that's a place where risk communication is both useful and easy. Uh, people are upset enough that they're listening, they're not apathetic, but they're not so upset that they're freaking out. Uh, so they're paying attention and they're asking smart questions. Uh, and the hazard is high enough that it's worth your time to talk to them, uh, but it's not so high that, that you need to evacuate them first or inoculate them or take some other emergency action. So when hazard is, 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 is intermediate, and outrage is also intermediate, that's real risk communication. But I don't do it much because it's easy, and no one wants to pay my hourly rate to do anything easy.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I think that really helps me, because I run into that situation pretty frequently with indoor air quality problems. I don't run into a lot of people that are too outraged. Uh, We we get the sweet spot pretty well, and I think what we'd like to do, Dr. Salmon, is we we go to our halftime now, thank our sponsors, and we have, unfortunately, a, a sad announcement today, but also uh, what we do is when we come back, we'd like to break down a little bit more on each of those different areas, the precaution advocacy, the outrage management, and the crisis communication, and have you give listeners some tips for how to handle the um, you know the, the communication aspect of things when they're in each of those different uh, categories, I guess you would call them. Sounds good. Great. Thank you. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com.
1: The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org.
0: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers. To provide superior environmental test instrumentation, visit them at
1: wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors.
0: NetClaims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections,
1: the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising
0: information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com Clean Facts and Cleaning
1: and Maintenance Management
0: Magazine
1: Your source for cleaning and maintenance news Visit them at clean.cleanfax.com and CMonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about
0: their services and products Let's go back to our interview with Dr. Peter Sandman. Dr. Sandman, we have you back. Yes, you do. Great. Uh, thanks for holding on there. We appreciate you joining us. And before the break, we'd gone through the four combinations of hazard and outrage, and and we talked a little bit about the. I, I think it was hazard high, outrage low, and you mentioned that that was a situation where precaution advocacy was advised. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you actually, you know, do pre- pre- precaution advocacy?
2: Well, the the core of precaution advocacy is the fact that people are apathetic. They're not worried about what you want them to be worried about. Uh, and that's not usually because they're apathetic about everything. It's because they're busy worrying about other things. Uh, you know, I mean, pe- people... You know, people have a worry agenda, and it's usually full, but there aren't a lot of people walking around saying, I don't have enough to worry about. <laughs> uh, so precaution advocacy is a competition. Uh, you're, you're trying to get them more upset about your risk at the expense of some other risk that they're going to become less upset about because they haven't got the capacity to become endlessly upset. Um, some of the things you need to do to wean in that competition uh... uh... some of them are obvious one you have to keep your message short because apathetic people have a short attention span you have to make it interesting because obviously they're not already interested or they wouldn't be apathetic uh... you have to stay on message uh... you're gonna have a very narrow uh, window of opportunity to try to persuade people uh... you don't want to waste it with uh... with irrelevancies um, uh... Uh, I, I think perhaps a, a more fundamental thing that's, that's key to precaution advocacy is you have to give people a reason to care about your issue. Uh, you have to analyze why they're not finding your issue upsetting, uh, and find something that, that pre-exists in your audience that makes them—you uh, know—that that, that it, it is an opportunity for them to become upset. About the thing you want them to be upset about that's usually either an emotion or a need uh, you know so when I, when I 'm sitting with a precaution advocacy client, uh, a core question we're asking is what is this audi- audience already feeling or what is a need this audience is already experiencing that we can hook to the behavior that we're interested in encouraging um, and I use the word behavior because um, you know one of the most fundamental truths of precaution advocacy is it's easier to get people to do something first and care later than it is to get people to care first and do something later. Uh, So very often in precaution advocacy, you're asking for uh, what professionals often call a behavioral commitment uh, or a foot in the door, Uh, and, and you might offer people pretty silly reasons To 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 do something. I mean, you know, people sign petitions, for example, because they don't want to appear rude. You know, and if a well-dressed person uh, uh, asks nicely for you to sign their petition, you may sign their petition. After signing their petition, you're much more interested in reading their literature than you were before you signed the petition, because you know now they now you signed the petition. You're wondering what you just got yourself into. You're wondering, you know, whether you were you were Foolish to do that. So, so now you have a need to know. So, so uh, information that is used to justify a behavioral commitment is much more readily absorbed than information that is used to challenge a habitual behavior. Do uh, you see the difference? And it's all the difference in the world between getting me to do something new and then telling me why I did it, and telling me why I should do it when I haven't done it, which is much, much harder.
0: I do okay. I I think I have an example. Let me see if if this strikes as a good example for you. Currently there are major budget cuts in the field of healthy homes and especially in the lead hazard reduction area. Now we know lead is a is a high hazard, you know, lead poisoning in children is a high hazard thing and it appears right now that there's not a great deal of um concern about the fact that these cuts are being made. They did start with some petitions, and they have people signing these petitions is Is that a good example, and maybe what would be the next step once you have the people signing these petitions
2: I mean if I were trying to mobilize people to get more concerned about lead uh, it, you know I, I I might ask them to sign petitions I might ask them to uh, uh, to join me in, a, in in protesting against some particularly egregious source of lead uh, i i i wouldn't Burden them with a lot of information. I wouldn't burden them with a, 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 a lot of evidence. I would try and come up with a behavior that wasn't too difficult, was kind of entertaining, was easy to do, uh, and get them to do that first. And then, as soon as I got people to do something that uh, uh, that was compatible with my goal, then I would inundate them with congratulations and information about how you know the contribution they've just made to the battle against lead contamination. Uh, And, you know, I would, having gotten the initial behavior, you know, which might be signing a petition, then I would, you know, I mean, the petition isn't its own reward. The petition isn't incredibly valuable in itself. It's a foot in the door. So now I want to tell people what it means that they signed the petition, what that represents a commitment to, and what other things they can do to continue to
0: actualize that commitment. So like calling their congressman or something like that.
2: That's right. So, so you build from small behaviors to, to bigger behaviors uh, using information to justify the, the behavior you just got uh, and link it to the next behavior you're going to ask for. Great. One other thing I think I ought to say about precaution advocacy, and it's, it's a good uh, sort of uh, lead-in to, to switching to outrage management, uh, and, and, and that is this. Sometimes what looks like a precaution advocacy problem about the risk is actually an outrage management problem about the precaution. Uh, Now, that may sound complicated, but an example will make it very clear. Uh, If you've got employees in your, you know, IEQ operation, and they're not wearing their PPE, they're not wearing their safety gear, um, one possibility, let's say they're not wearing a hard hat in a situation where they really should be wearing their hard hat. One possibility is that they're insufficiently outraged, insufficiently upset about the danger of getting knocked on the head. That would be a ca- precaution advocacy problem. But there's another possibility: they may hate the hard hat. Uh, it itches. Uh, you know, it, it makes you sweat too much. It interferes with the visibility. Uh, it's uncomfortable. It looks geeky. Uh, you know, whatever the combination of motives are that makes them. Uh, Hate the hard hat. All right, now you have, instead of having a an, a precaution advocacy problem that focuses on getting hit on the head, you've got an outrage management problem that focuses on hard hats. <laughs> uh, and, you, you know, you need to diagnose which one is the main problem because teaching people that it's dangerous in there is very different from, let's say, uh, making hard hats more attractive. Put decals on them. Let them put decals on them that, you know, I mean, you know, the decals that indicate membership, decals that indicate uh, individuality, you know, the name of their 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 spouse or their girlfriend or their dog or whatever. Uh, you know, pass rules that say you're not allowed to wear the hard hat unless you're in a dangerous place. So the hard hat becomes a symbol of courage instead of a symbol of cowardice. Uh, I mean, there are things you do if the problem isn't precaution advocacy about getting hit on the head, but outrage management about the PPE. Uh, So it's a question you always want to ask in precaution advocacy. Might my problem be, at least in part, outrage management about the precaution instead of precaution advocacy about the risk?
0: I got it. Now let's go to the hazard's low and the outrage is high, and so we want to do outrage management, not like you just explained outrage management because of, of what you just explained but in this case we've got a low hazard and we've got a high outrage so we've got um oh, let's say let's say there's people concerned about an indoor air quality issue in there i'll tell you one that commonly comes up is mold all right and and i'm not saying that it's not a problem and like you have eloquently stated there are times when there is appropriate outrage and i think there are times when there's appropriate outrage over living in a moldy home but oftentimes it's it's a small problem and there's more outrage than there is hazard can you tell us how to deal with that
2: okay uh... the first and single most important thing to say is calm down doesn't work uh... calm down is the paradigm you're trying to calm them down but calm down is never the message uh, because it's not an effective message, I mean, especially if your tone of voice makes it clear that what you're really saying is calm down, you hysterical fool. <laughs> uh, people don't like being called an hysterical fool. Uh, they don't like being told to calm down. Upset people don't get less upset when you tell them to get less upset. So that's a non-starter as a solution. Um, uh, the, the place to begin, I think, is by listening. Uh, people who are upset usually want to to yell at you Uh, if they think it's your fault they want to yell at you about what you did wrong if you're the landlord that let the the place get moldy or you're the building contractor that didn't fix it right in their judgment the first time they want to yell at you about you Uh, even if uh, you're you're the savior, you're going to come in and remedy the problem and you didn't cause the problem they still want to vent they still want to tell you how awful it's been Uh, and if if you're going to you know at the end of the day try to convince them that it's that it's not as dangerous as they think it is it's crucial absolutely crucial to listen to them vent. and and all you know i mean what what I say to outrage management clients is don't even don't even try to to say anything about to correct their misimpressions don't even try to tell them. Uh, uh, that they're they're more upset than they ought to be. Uh, don't in fact try to tell them anything until they're ready to listen. Until they in fact say, "Jesus, I've been you know I've been yelling at you for an hour. You haven't said anything. What's your reaction? What you know? What have you got to tell me?" Uh, and you have, you almost make them beg uh, to talk before you talk because uh, they're so typically so desperate uh, to vent and and so uninterested in listening at the beginning. Then finally, when, 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 when you really do get the floor, when it really is your turn to talk, um, the single most important thing to do is to demonstrate that you've heard them. Um, you know, so you, so you want to, uh, uh, you, 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 having listened to what they have to say, you want to tell them what they had to say. Uh, so you wind up in a, in a public meeting, for example, uh, after an hour of, of, of people venting, you may wind up saying, Well, I've I been listening for an hour, and, and if, I'm, if I'm hearing you right, uh, there seem to be three main things that people are very unhappy about. They wish we hadn't done X. Uh, they're very angry that we, you know, that we did Y, and they're very worried that we might happen. Uh, so you're you're summarizing, and you do it tentatively so they can tell you you got it wrong if you, if they think you got it wrong. But you're summarizing what they have told you. All of that is a prerequisite, you know, to their being uh, beginning to be willing to hear that it's not as bad as they thought or that, or that, you know, it's going to be more remediable than they fear.
0: Okay. And I got a little background. There we go. It went away, whatever it was. I just had a little background noise there and it went away. Okay. Now the, the last of the three that you discussed is the, the, when we've got a high hazard and a high outrage and we're in the crisis communication mode. Can you give listeners a few tips on how to handle those types of situations? Uh, the
2: biggest sin in crisis communication is to think that it's outrage management and try to calm people down. Uh, people are upset in a crisis because uh, it's a crisis, and, you know, they're not mistakenly upset. They're rightly upset. Uh, you know, so the sin in crisis communication is anything that takes the form of don't worry about it, sweetheart. Uh, I mean, that's, that's crappy outrage management, too, but it's, it's dishonorable crisis communication. You should be worried in a crisis. Uh, so so you you go to the other side uh you acknowledge the validity of of how upset people are uh, you instead of expressing optimism uh, you express determination uh, in, in in you, you know you, you never want to over reassure in a crisis uh, very often crises are highly uncertain uh, and you want to acknowledge the uncertainty we don't know how bad it'll get uh if you're if you're diagnosing a uh a, a house problem and you and you already know the problem is serious, this is not uh you know somebody who's grossly overreacting but you don't know how bad it is you don't know uh, you know you you haven't got the details yet uh and there's a there's a range of possible outcomes, some of which are not too awful and some of which are really awful uh you're going to want to acknowledge the uncertainty. Uh, and there there are two anchors in a crisis and you, in, ter, in terms of explaining, you know, how bad it might be. One anchor is the likeliest outcome. Uh, you know, what do you think is probably going to happen or what do you think is probably wrong? And the other anchor is the worst outcome that isn't vanishingly unlikely. It's not the absolutely worst outcome because that's a reductio ad absurdum. And there is no worst-case scenario you know, whatever you come up with, I can say, not only that, but that's the day the Martians invade. Uh, you know, so There's it's, it's never a worst-case scenario. What you're looking for is the worst case that, that strikes you as reasonable, the worst case that you're worried about as a professional. Uh, and th- those are the two questions we ask uh, a plumber they're the two questions we ask a doctor they're the two questions we ask an indoor uh, environmental quality consultant they're the two questions everybody asks in a crisis what do you think it is and what are you worried it might be what's the worst thing that you think it might be hmm. uh, and those are the two anchors and you give those two about equal attention you give very little attention but not none to the best case scenario You know, this might fizzle. It might turn out to be a very benign problem. You mention that so that you don't have egg all over your face if it does fizzle. Uh, You know, it's 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 in your interest and it's in your audience interest to mention it, but it's it's by far the least important. You're much more interested in what what do you what do you think it probably is, and what are you worried it might be.
0: Interesting. I, I just wanted—I don't know if you can comment or not—but we just had the nuclear issue that came after the tsunami in Japan, and they had obviously a high hazard, high outrage situation. Any thoughts on how well they did with handling that?
2: Uh, well, I mean, the 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 thing the Japanese government did very badly, and you know, we didn't know it in real time for sure, but we certainly know it now. Uh, is it? It it wasn't honest enough with the people of Japan about the worst case scenario. It follows, you know, you're absolutely right. It follows directly on on what I was just talking about. Yep. Uh, uh, we now know uh, from information that's been revealed, uh, you know, in, in recent months, that the Japanese government was incredibly worried. It thought that this might be a, 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 a an even worse disaster than it was. They might have to evacuate Tokyo. Uh, and you know, I mean, they were worried about absolutely horrific nuclear scenarios, uh, which you know, God willing, so far have not materialized. What happened was was bad. What happened was, you know, you know makes makes Three Mile Island look like a walk in the park. Uh, but what happened was nowhere near as bad as what they were worried about. They were not honest about that. Now, you could make it. You know, I'm I'm not an ethicist. I'm not an expert in whether you should always be honest or not. Uh, I'm an expert in, in ways of talking to people that work and ways of talking to people that don't work. So to me, what's important isn't just that the Japanese government was dishonest. Uh, what's important is that the dishonesty of the Japanese government, the failure of the, of the Japanese government to share its worst fears, resonated in real time with the Japanese people. They smelled a rat. Uh, And because their government was over-reassuring them, they became much more upset than they might otherwise have been. And it was much harder for them to cope with the crisis when when they felt like the government wasn't leveling with them than it would have been if the government had said, we don't know how bad this is going to get. We're hoping it's only going to be X, but it might be Y, and God help us, it might even be Z. We're preparing for that. That's our worst case. And they didn't do that. Uh, and it, it, it's, for me, it's not an ethical issue. For me, the main thing is uh, you know when you look at surveys of, of the Japanese public in real time, long before the, it, it came out, what information that you know and what fears the Japanese government had suppressed, long before all of that came out, there was evidence that the Japanese public had lost trust in the government because of how they communicated about the accident. Hmm. So that, I mean, that's a, a very good lesson that. If you, if you tell people what, you, what you're frightened about and you're frightened with them, they can bear it. If you tell them not to be frightened and pretend that you're not, they smell a rat, they feel alone with their fear, and they freak out all the more.
0: Interesting. Well, let's go to our roundup here. We've got uh, a couple minutes left. Dr. Salmon, do you have to leave right away? Do you got another five minutes?
2: I have another five minutes.
0: Great. Thank you.
2: Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit
0: him up, Roar high, Cut him out, ride them in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride on in. Let's go to – Cliff, do you want to get a question before Dr. yeah, Sure,
1: I I, I can get one in. Uh, Dr. Simon, one of the common things that happens in the field of disaster repair is the contractor knows what his capabilities are, and typically we're very, very confident on what the outcome is going to be. And I would say that we have a tendency to um, under-promise and over-deliver uh, but in these situations where there is, a, you know, you you would you call it a fire or bad water damage, a hazard high, outrage high situation. Uh, can you just provide some tips when the contractor just has this confidence that he knows, you know, he's seen much worse. He knows what his capabilities are. He knows that, you know, when it's all done, it's going to really be better than new. Uh, you know, just any tips on that. Well, it's
2: a two-step process. I mean, you have you have to validate how upset people are. You have to validate how bad the situation is. You have to make it clear that you 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 have seen and taken on board, and you feel compassionate and empathic about you know this is the worst thing they've ever experienced. Um, and it's only in the context of all of that that you can begin to say, this is what you do for a living uh you know and it's the worst they've ever seen but it's it's kind of you know normal for you uh and and you know you have to say that not like you know I have a lot more experience than you do guys uh you know that has to be said you know with with some wryness that you know you know what you do for a living is go from disaster to disaster and disasters you know are your normal you know daily bread uh, but you you know you can begin to tell me that you know yeah you 've been here before, you know how to do this it's you know you're it, you're you're reasonably confident i wouldn 't sound excessively confident i wouldn 't say for sure things are going to t- turn out all right, partly because that 's never true and partly because it 's never credible, even if it were true, so you want to say you know i'm i 'm optimistic if you are uh i 'm hopeful if optimistic is too strong. Uh, I think we, I think we can cope with this. I think it's probably not for sure, but probably going to come out okay. Uh, but none of that can be heard until you've you know spent enough time listening to and validating and empathizing with what a disaster it feels
0: like to the people you're talking to.: Okay, great. Let's get Dr. Wow in here, Dr. What. Oh. Hello, Dieter. I know this. You'll love this one.
3: Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> and long after I'm dead, other people will love it also. It's a brilliant piece of music. Anyway, I mean, I listened very, very carefully. I didn't know what was coming. I thought there would be more biostatistics and uh, epidemiology, you know, the study of people, well, which in a way it is, but not, yeah, the way it is done with math and, 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 and statistics. Um, And that, I was missed, I mean, that's what I was thinking I was uh, going to get and listen to. I like every point that Dr. Salmon made. It's, uh, I ran into situations like this. Uh, or, or some of them that he ran into, where a a waste disposal site—I get into the hazard in a minute, in a second, a uh, few seconds—where a hazardous waste disposal site was developed. There was not a gram of anything that land, earth was moved, and somebody died of cancer uh, half a mile or a mile away from it. And it was due to that. Yeah, there's, yeah, there, it's, it's, there's nothing you can say. Uh, that's the same thing. I have, I have friends and acquaintances. They will not go into an airport because they don't fly. That uh, that's too dangerous. You can give them all the statistics of how many people we kill with air uh, with uh, cars every year in the United States alone which is approximately still about 40,000, and we, you know, of course, they don't get headlines, and that is exactly a point that we were listening to that uh, Dr. Salmon made. Uh, But if an airplane falls down with two people dead in it, my God, it's on the front page, and everybody said, oh, my, I knew it, I knew it, these
2: airplanes are not safe. Uh, Interesting. As, as you say, it's not about statistics. Uh, I mean, some of the things that contribute to outrage, and you can see it in plane crashes, are things like dread and memorability. Uh, you know, I mean, control is an issue. You know, you're driving the car, but you're not driving the plane. Uh, there are a number of factors that are very well established to contribute to you know, to outrage. And statistical hazard isn't one of them. Well, yeah, it isn't, right. And, I mean, you are
3: basically, call it a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Uh, yeah, I mean, I started in psychology. <laughs> Applied psychology, right.
0: I like that, Applied And, I mean, psychology. I go
3: through the same thing. You know, I tell us that, man, I didn't see anything over here. There is not one wet spot in your house. I took air samples, and they are all, if not, I mean, insignificant. I don't even want to say... Uh, 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 irrelevant or negative, and I said they are all insignificant. It's completely normal where you. I, I know, I'm sneezing because there's something wrong in my house. And I said, look, I did everything you can- you wanted me to do, and there isn't anything. that there isn't. An- well, that's not my job. And I said, okay, adios, bye bye. I-,
2: I give up. That's not my job. But if you wanted to make that your job you got to learn risk communication. And then, you know, I mean, there are ways of doing that. It's not easy, and it doesn't always work. But, you know, but you're, if, you're, if there are ways of talking to people who are irrationally upset, that stands a better chance of calming them down than data.
3: Well, maybe, maybe yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I agree with you there. Uh, the other thing is, and I would recommend that I made that um, – a, a, an assignment when I was teaching in the Graduate School of Public Health. If you have a dictionary, look up toxicity and hazard or hazardous and toxic. Hazard comes from an Arabic word from many, many, many years back, like 2000. And um, uh, uh, with hazard is a possibility connected. Whereas with toxicity, it is not. Toxicity is a measurable quantity. Hazard is not really. We know we get we have approaches. I know we can get to it. But in the original definition of the word, is there was that possibility that something is going to happen. And I also forgot, I have it written down here. Andy, congratulations. Andy, who won again the trivia question contest is a dear friend of mine. I haven't seen him several months, but will uh, probably see him pretty soon. Right. And uh yeah, I mean I I, I listen carefully and, and and I ran I I'm, I'm I'm doing uh I'm running into those situations for the last 40 years where yeah, a coal miner tells me, look fellow, I don't need that damn respirator, Adios, get out of here. Uh Coal miners, of course, always wear hard hats for a very good reason, that's where the cap lamp is. (laughs) So you don't have to convince them of that. Uh, But um, it is amazing. And I don't know, should we start that in high school to educate people? Maybe that is, it's not difficult. You You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the concept. And I said, hey guys, every time you look at something, you have to take a step back and look at it again and, and evaluate it. But anyway, I shut up over here. I liked uh, I liked your comments very much because they are dear to me because I run into them for yeah, the next uh, a couple of years.
0: Well Dieter, thanks as always for joining us. We always appreciate having you. And uh Dr. Sandman, I just before we go, we always like to ask, is there anything that you would like to add? I mean, obviously, we couldn't possibly cover everything you discuss in, in an hour, but if there's anything that you'd like to add, we'd like to give you that final opportunity.
2: Two things, if I can. Uh, one, in, in response to Peter, I, I would point out that the resistance to data occurs universally, including in people who think they're uh, extremely responsive to data. So when I have an audience of technical people and I give them data proving that data don't work, they don't notice the data that data don't work. They have a deep emotional commitment to data, and they reject the data that shows that data are not a good communication approach. Uh, you know, so It's not as if you know well-educated technical people are more responsive to data in the areas of their deep commitments than anybody else. Nobody is responsive to data in the areas of their deep commitments. You have to talk to them differently. Interesting. Uh, that, that would be the first thing I want to say. And the second thing, very quickly, is we didn't talk as much about uh, indoor environmental quality issues as I thought we might. Uh, if anyone is interested in, in a risk communication approach to indoor environmental quality, uh, there is an article on my website called Indoor Air Quality Risk Communication. Before you fix anything, Talk. Uh, and it has a, a list of, of what I consider the most important pointers uh, in dealing with, with IAQ controversies that are low in hazard and high in outrage. Uh, the website is www.psandman.com. Uh, it's not commercial. Uh, I'm only trying to, to sell risk communication. I'm not trying to sell me. Uh, but uh, that article on indoor air quality risk communication uh, is something some of your readers, some of your listeners, might want to read.
0: I appreciate that. We'll put uh, Val. We need to put a link up to that for next week, along with the blog. Cliff does a blog after every show too, that we will put on our website and out with the next uh, announcement for the next show. Well, this is uh, Radio Joe Hughes thanking Dr. Peter Sandman. Thanks so much for joining us. We really, uh, I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure our listeners did too, and I learned a lot, and I'm going to use it when I go back to work on Monday. There you go. I'm going to take the weekend off, though. Uh, but uh, thanks again for joining us, and uh, have a great day. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Uh, this is uh, the, the Z-Man uh, back in our seats here. It's been great. Uh, I appreciate always you holding down the fort the last couple of weeks for me here. Thanks to Val Bender for uh, once again doing a great job. No no glitches today. Nice job, Val. Beautiful, and of course to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. I want to sh- say hi to uh, Joe Panessa out there. I forgot to mention to Dr. Salmon that you sent us a little note here. Thank you, Joe. Always nice to hear from previous guests of the show. And, of course, to our most uh, loyal listeners, and we're trying to get a show for next week. I hope we do it. We're uh, working on Marty King and hopefully getting Ed Light back, talking a little fire, and then we may also do another tribute for uh, Mr. Weaver. Uh, Thanks all for joining us. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.
2: Friend, if he puts it down in yeah, yeah, yeah. Well this man marriage-
1: Has been another IAQ radio production.